Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help com slash sacred text. Chapter 15, Beaubaton and Durmstrang. Early next morning, Harry woke with a plan fully formed in his mind, as though his sleeping brain had been working on it all night. He got up, dressed in the pale dawn light, left the dormitory without waking Ron, and went back down to the deserted common room. Here he took a piece of parchment from the table upon which his divination homework still lay, and wrote the following letter. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt. Vanessa. Our Emily Dickinson pilgrimage is on sale. And I'm not going to lie, I'm going to miss you on this trip. Because it's me, Amy Hollywood, Stephanie Paulsell, talking about Emily Dickinson, oh, two of the most brilliant people that we know. It sounds a little bit like I've been intentionally excluded from a great trip. <laughs> like these are two of our closest mutual friends. It would be like if the Beatles decided to do a trip together, but were like, don't tell George. <laughs> no. Everybody, you can find out more by going to NotSorryWorks.com and clicking on our pilgrimages icon. It really is going to be so special. These are two incredible theologians and literary analysts who are going to be helping us decode an almost mystical poet here in New England. And I'm thrilled that we're getting to do this. And then, of course, we have the announcement of our Patreon perk for today, our Patreon bonus conversation, we are going to be talking about, you know, a hedgehog gets turned into a pincushion. At least Hermione is able to do that in this chapter. And that makes total sense to me, Matt, a hedgehog is a pincushion. And so we're wondering what other animals would get turned into. And we're going to talk a little bit about the metaphysics 
of what happens to the soul of the hedgehog. So do hedgehogs have souls? This, this is what I want to know. You can sign up for that at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. And if you don't do any of those things, we're just really glad that you're here for all the silliness. Vanessa, our theme this week is creativity, and you're going to tell us a story about creativity. I sure am. What's your story? One of the things about creativity is this idea that necessity is the mother of invention. There's something about limitations creating a space for creativity that I find very interesting. So I'm going to tell a story about one of my very first memories, which is that for my older brother's seventh birthday, so I was four, my parents took my cousins, my brother, and like one or two other friends to an Angels game. And David got his name on the scoreboard. And it was just, it was so exciting. And it was my first baseball game. And it was just the most fun thing for me ever. <laughs> I'm sure David had fun too. And then we got to the parking lot. And, you know, we came in my parents' minivan. And no one remembered where we parked the car. So what my parents eventually decided to do was not look for the car and to have all of the kids, like, find somewhere safe to sort of sit and play games and wait until the parking lot emptied out. That eventually it would be really obvious where the car was because there wouldn't be that many cars left. And so we played, you know, Duck, Duck, Goose and some other games. I'm sure I remember Duck, Duck, Goose. And it just... It was, to me, a moment of inspiration because it took something that I think could have felt scary, like not knowing where our car was in the dark and five or six kids following my parents around being like, what's happening? And instead really made it this like joyful, silly thing. And the reason that I tell that story in creativity is because creativity is just about seeing the world slightly different than the way it's designed for you to see it. Hmm for a moment and then harnessing it, right? Like yeah. no one said everybody has to look for their car as quickly as possible, but like that's what we do. We all rush into the parking lot and look for our car and panic when we can't find it. And I don't know who, if it was my, you know, my mom, my dad, my older cousin, Nicole, who was there, but someone was like, let's do this differently. And it just shifted yeah. this moment into something magical. Yeah. There are two things I really like about that story, Vanessa. The first is exactly what you said, which is that a lot of times creativity is just seeing the world in a different way than other people seeing it, like recognizing what is already there, right? Rather than like bringing forth some new thing, it's just recognizing what's already there and being able to to see that when other people can't. The other thing I really like about the story is that it's just like the patience of it. Because mm -hmm. I think that creativity takes patience too. I think... Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think we think about creativity as like a flash of lightning, mm -hmm. when actually I think creativity just sometimes takes time. It takes time mm -hmm. sitting with something. And for our little visit to Etymology Corner this week, the word creativity is associated with the Roman goddess Ceres, who's the goddess of agriculture. Oh, so it was wow. about like cultivation, about bringing forth something through time and patience and working at it and cultivation. And I just think about like you all playing duck duck goose on the sidewalk is just you taking time for the thing to emerge that you knew would emerge eventually if you just had patience if you kept a positive attitude and cared for each other and that's i think that's also another great like analogy for what creativity is or ought to be when it arises in its best form in our lives it is time to remind people of what happened in this chapter would you like to go first i would love to go first you can come in yeah 
On your mark, get set, go. So they're thinking, well, what's going to happen in, in in Dark Arts next week? It's very scary. And they hear what they find out what happens, and it's awful. Like, he does the Imperius curse on them all, and none of them can resist, because Harry can kind of resist, and so he has to resist four times, and that sounds not good. And then they visit other teachers, and Hagrid does something that's not great, says something that's not great to, to Malfoy, and then they get a notice that the other schools are coming, and the other schools comes, and one's a big carriage with giant horses that drink whiskey, and Hagrid can take care of them. And then Durmstrong comes as ship out of the out of the water, and Karkaroff is there, and not very trustworthy. Because he has a weak chin. Because he's a weak chin. I, as the buzzer was going off, I was thinking to myself, he's not trustworthy because his smile doesn't go to his eyes. I feel like yeah. if someone's if the if you someone did a Grinch smile where their smile actually went all the way up to their eyes, do not trust them. <laughs> that, that person is a demon. Don't don't trust them. Okay. Would you like me to count you in, Vanessa? Please count me in. Three, two, one, go. Trelawney loves all the death that the boys are going to have, but she wants more death next week. Um, Transfiguration is really hard for Neville. He's really struggling. The scroots keep growing. Snape has threatened to curse the kids um, as like a pedagogical thing. But it's very exciting because Bobatan and Durmstrang are arriving and all of the kids are like, whoa. And Madame Maxime comes out and she's the same size as Hagrid. And she had huge horses and Karkarov arrived in a big boat that come out of the lake. That was great. My favorite moment in the chapter is one I forgot, but that you mentioned, which is Trelawney's complimenting the children on their divination homework. (laughs) So, Matt, to me, there is like a central place that we have to go with this question of creativity. Okay. Especially in the frame that we were talking about with my story, which is seeing the world a little bit differently, which I feel like is what Harry is doing in resisting the imperious curse. What we find out is that there's like this second voice that comes into his head, right? Moody's voice is in his head. Jump on the table, jump on the table, jump on the table. And this other voice comes in and goes, why? I don't want to. And that to me seems like creativity. The easiest thing to do is just follow an order. And there's just like this brilliant spark of inspiration in Harry that he's questioning it and therefore able to resist it. Yeah. You know, as I was reading this chapter the first time and I was thinking, oh, we're going to see what the Imperious Curse feels like. And what's interesting about it is like I had anticipated it would feel like constraint. It would feel like like against your will. But instead, what the Imperious Curse does is elicit like a pleasant complacency. Yep. Right. Like, oh, I feel really great. And so why not do this thing that that could be my will? Sure. Because everything's fine. Right. Mm-hmm. It like takes away your own will through a sense of pleasure And I think that's why your point is really important, right? Just the willingness to look at the world a different way, even when it seems like everything's going right. Right. Is so important, right? That's where creativity comes from. Like, I think, you know, if you think about great works of art or music or writing, which is where we tend to think about creativity. It's not like all the art before was bad. It's not like like everyone's like, oh, boy, that that Bach, he's he's a real, (laughs) what a hack. And Beethoven says, I guess I got to write some good music now. It's not that. It's like there was already good music, except someone had to hear something different or come to something new and different. Right. And I think that's really interesting as a model for creativity, that just this willingness to even when everything seems like it's already okay, to hear something else, see something else, look for something else. Yeah. Right. I think that is a, a great example of like how creativity works in the mind of this child and also maybe generally in a lot of cases. Yeah. And then... 
we have to wonder what inspires him. And, you know, my first thought is that it's trauma-inspired to resist, right? Like, growing up Mm. with the Dursleys, this, like, I don't just follow orders because they've been given to me. Actually, authority figures are not to be trusted necessarily. Even when it looks nice, it could be a trick, whatever it is. Whereas if you grew up in a home where you can trust authorities, you're not going to think, oh, someone's up to something here. But I don't, I don't want to rely on the gifts of trauma. And so I guess we can just say that Harry's just special. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that reminds me of Hannah Gadsby and her, her comedy special. Nanette. Mm-hmm. Just like persistently refusing to say that trauma is a gift. It's not like a thing that makes you artistic, right? Right. So I think I think both can be true. I think that maybe Harry has acquired this particular capacity because of some experiences he's, he's had, but that's not the only way to acquire it. And in fact, if yeah. you asked Harry, he would choose to acquire it a different way, <laughs> right? Yes. Like he could have had like a really loving mom and dad who cultivated this in him. Right. Right. In other ways, right? And so like, I don't think you're saying that, but I think that there might be something to it. I also just wonder about like the, the fact that almost literally Harry is of two minds, right? Like he has a resistance inside his head all the time. Like we will learn later on in the series that because Harry's a Horcrux, Voldemort is kind of present to him. So there always is this like second voice in Harry's mind. And maybe that also affords this resistance. Again, that's not to Mm -hmm. say that therefore one needs a moment of great suffering or trauma to be creative, but it might be one of the reasons why this particular character has this willingness to listen harder or listen further or not even trust his own comfort. I think that's the thing. Not trusting his own comfort is is really important. And I think it's also really important for the series as a whole because this is the flaw we see in the ministry basically from this point going forward. The ministry is so eager to trust its own comfort that it refuses to see that they need to come up with some new solutions. Yeah. Which is the brilliance of Hermione, right? And I think her creativity here, you know, there's a harsh truth in this castle, which is that there are house elves. And as she starts, you know, she's campaigning in this chapter, saying to people, your sheets get changed and your laundry gets done by these people. And I think that true creativity is not just seeing the thing differently, but then acting on it, right? And the acting on it, to your point earlier about patience, right? Like Hermione sees this and she is being so persistent in talking about it. I mean, so persistent. She's driving a lot of people up the wall, but so deeply persistent in a way that I think is so beautiful. And by talking about it, she's learning new things, right? She talks about it with Fred and George. And George is like, have you ever been to the kitchens? And he's saying they're happy down there. But the information that Hermione is taking is it's possible to go to the kitchens. Yeah, right. And so she's just holding on to this inspiration. And it's a iterative process in a positive way. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, I hadn't even thought of that, but it's a direct analogy for everything that we were just saying about the ministry and about Harry that like she is not trusting their comfort at Hogwarts. right? Right. Like she's trying to discern ways to to imagine something new and and it will bear fruit again by the end of the series like the elves will become an instrumental part of everyone's liberation and that's that's really important yeah you know i when i reacted to your story i use the language of waiting mm-hmm. right like patience using the analogy of cultivation from the roman god series like oh you have to wait for but 
cultivation is also really hard work. It takes persistence <laughs> and effort and diligence. I don't always think of Hermione as a patient character because I think yeah, that yeah, she can yeah. sometimes be impulsive in a really endearing way. But she's absolutely a persistent and diligent character. Like She is willing to keep working at a thing that she knows is the right thing for as long as it takes. And then that that's the kind of patience I think that we're talking about. Actually, this example makes me think of another moment of creativity. And it was the moment that I called one of my favorite moments in the chapter, which is when Trelawney just praises Harry and Ron (laughs) for their divination answers. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a joke in this chapter because as we learned in the last chapter, Harry and Ron made it all up. And (laughs) and the strategy they used for making up their homework was to come up with the most outlandishly tragic course of events that they could anticipate for themselves. Right? Right. Yeah. Just every bad outcome that they could imagine. Like yeah. they're, they're worried about next week's homework because they can't they don't know if they can think of any more awful things to happen to them. <laughs> and Trelawney loves it. Right. And that's the joke, because Trelawney likes to imagine, I guess, these children suffering or to talk about their suffering. But there's one thing that she says when she's giving the homework back to the boys that I thought was really important about creativity and also in line with everything we've been saying about creativity. So here's the line from the text. Harry and Ron were deeply amused when Professor Trelawney told them that they had received top marks for their homework in their next divination class. She read out large portions of their predictions, and here's the line, commending them for their unflinching acceptance of the horrors in store for them. And to me, that line is really important, like their unflinching acceptance of the horrors that were in store for them, because what it implies about divination is is that a significant portion of divination is just giving up one's optimism. It's like... (laughs) To like letting go of the idea that everything is going to turn out well for me and being willing to look into a future which might have bad news for you, right? Which is like related to the imperious curse, which is like, oh, everything's fine. I don't have to ask questions, right? Like actual seeing into the future means like, oh, I actually have to be honest about what might be in store for me. And I can see the future better if I am honest about what's in store for me, which again is the whole problem with the ministry who cannot anticipate what is going on because they refuse to believe that anything bad might be coming. I think that that's right, Matt. And I think that sometimes accepting the limitations of a situation can break us out of that, right? I recently had my whole family stay in our house. And our house is very comfortable for four people and a dog, but it is much less comfortable for 11 people and a dog. And I was very anxious about that. I was like, this is just going to be so uncomfortable. And then once I just right like embraced it and was like, this is going to be very uncomfortable. And like, here are the things that we can do. We can build a blanket fort for the two little kids. We can get creative about this. I think that looking straight into the fear of this is going to be so uncomfortable and miserable for everyone, allowed me to get creative and set ourselves up for success ahead of time. Yeah. The ability to to let go of our optimism in order to see the world as it is, is also to see the limits that we actually have. And as your initial story said, like, necessity is the mother of invention, that creativity depends upon working within the limits that actually exist, right? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. You know, we've we've been talking, Vanessa, in this chapter about the places where we see the limitations allowing creativity to flourish. But I think there's also a moment in the chapter where you can see creativity being constrained. One thing we learned in the chapter is that, you know, there's a healthy sense of competition among these three schools, Bobotone, Durmstrang, and Hogwarts. And we see that in the how clean they're making the school, right? Like poor Filch and poor house elves are doing a ton of work to try to get the castle as spick and span as possible. And we hear just stories of like longstanding rivalries between these schools. And that also means that the Hogwarts teachers are very concerned that the students look absolutely you know, spot on that, that, that they can do all the spells they ought to be able to do, that they look right, quote unquote, right. And one of the moments we see that is when the other schools, when Bobaton and Durmstrang are about to arrive, Parvati has a butterfly barrette in her hair. And McGonagall just kind of very uh, abruptly and tersely tells her to take it out because it looks ridiculous, right? And, and here's a, a place where like, you know, you think about school uniforms and on one model, you can think about the school uniform as being sort of that set of limitations in which one can express creativity. I'm not taking a strong position on school uniforms here, but, you know, in this context, you can see Parvati, at least, trying to express some creativity within the confines of the uniform that she's required to wear at Hogwarts and how it's just like stifled. Yeah. Right. And how the idea of presenting order or uniformity is what looks good to these rivals who are showing up. And that that made me kind of wonder about like, well, why wouldn't we see creativity or why is it that order is impressive? <laughs> right? right. Why is it like highly regimented uniformity is the thing that will look, look impressive when others show up as opposed to like a bunch of really amazing kids who who are exploring their own magic and their own relationship to their magic in really interesting and unique ways. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you thought of that scene in that moment. I agree. And this like question You know, again, I feel like the big thing that I'm taking away from this book is how pausing is so helpful, because I feel like if McGonagall paused for half a second and was just like, 
we want to be the kind of school that shows that we allow different people's preferences and creativity to shine and that we put them all in uniforms because we believe in that. But also, you know, we're this other kind of school, too. I think that, you know, she's just in this moment of overwhelm, as we've talked about, which I can imagine myself doing, right? Like, not pausing and thinking to consider, you know, just like she did a couple of chapters ago when the students arrived and she was just yelling at everyone instead of being worried that everyone was wet. I I officially am worried that McGonagall's overworked because she does not seem to have the opportunity to be creative and thoughtful. She's yelling at Neville to, like, not transfigure things in front of other students. Why would Neville do that? Like, that is, like, not a helpful piece of feedback for Neville, who has just put his ears onto something he transfigured. I don't think we have to acutely worry about Neville running around trying to show off about spells. So I just feel like we're really seeing McGonagall at her worst a lot in this novel. And I'm curious as to what's going on with her. Yeah, right. And, like, there are hundreds of students outside. Is anybody to notice a butterfly barrette in Poverty's hair, right? Like, yeah, it's there is... I like the way you frame that more sympathetically and generously towards McGonagall, which is like, okay, the limitations here around McGonagall, the constraints here are becoming so burdensome that she's not able to move freely within those constraints in order to be the kind of creative pedagogue or teacher that we see her to be in other places in these books. So, Matt, I would argue that we see some not creative teaching in this chapter. I don't think it's super creative of Moody to do a super illegal curse on the kids so that they can understand what it's like to be imperious. I feel like there are probably other ways. But more to the point, Snape has given the assignment that the kids have to make these antidotes. And the way that he is, quote unquote, inspiring the 14-year-olds is by hinting that he might poison them. And so if the antidotes don't work, Someone in their class could get very sick and maybe die. We know that Snape would actually come in and save a kid's life. But this seems like a not creative way to teach about antidotes. Thoughts? I I agree. Not great teaching. Not going to incorporate this into my own teaching practice. It's also something that we'll see from folks who are meant to be less cruel than Snape, because that's what happens with the second task, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Like this idea that there is actual danger here, even though maybe there was never actually danger. But we're doing it to motivate you and raise the stakes, but the stakes weren't actually that high. Yeah, that's not not great. I agree. Just one thing I wanted to note too here, this is more just us taking a critical posture towards the text before we move on to our spiritual practice. When I'm reading these novels, I always wonder like what readers from either France or like Germanic countries think of of these novels because, you know, the, given the names that we have, Bobaton and Durmstrang, I think we're meant to understand that the location of these two schools are in, you know, the Romance-speaking areas of, of Europe and the Germanic areas of Europe. And when the schools arrive, they arrive sort of as the embodiments of or caricatures of stereotypes of Gallic and Germanic peoples, right? And sort of like flat stereotypes, you know, of Gallic and Germanic peoples. And I I just, it just, it feels weird to me. And Hogwarts, it's a British school. And, you know, we get to see a little bit of the complexity, although Rowling 
doesn't really describe a lot of ethnic diversity or religious diversity or whatever at the school. Although we have hints of it in folks like Parvati. And then we also have fan fiction that elaborates where that diversity might otherwise be because it's not described. But if if Hogwarts is flatly rendered as British, then Bobatone and Durmstrang are even more flatly rendered as French and German uh, or Germanic and Gallic or whatever. And that, that it just it's kind of. I know it just felt weird reading the arrival of these two school groups when they seem to function so, so simply as stereotypes. Yeah. I mean, J.K. Rowling is not great on this, right? No. Even within Hogwarts, right? Cho Chang. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Not, as soon as someone's not like white British. Yeah. She's just reaching for stereotypes, which again is a lack of creativity. Yeah. Part of the patience of creativity yeah. is doing some basic research. And we had yeah. Kathy Tu on the show, you know, years ago now talking about naming the character Cho Chang. And she's just like, if J.K. Rowling had done any research, that was just like not how Chinese immigrants in England would yeah. name their child, right? Like statistically. Yeah. And so, yeah, right. you know, this is really pointing to absolutely a lack of creativity on Rowling's part. Thank you for calling that to our attention, Matt. Thanks for this theme conversation, Vanessa. So, Vanessa, we're doing Havruta this week. And in Havruta, I start with a question for you. One of the scenes we didn't get to talk about so much in the theme conversation is the scene when Fred and George are kind of conspiring about ways to get into the Triwizard Tournament. And Hermione joins the conversation and begins kind of organizing for SBEW and advocating for house elves. And we have this kind of moment between Fred and George and Hermione where Fred and George are like, we've been to the kitchens. They're happy. And Hermione says, that's because they're uneducated and brainwashed. And the, I didn't like any of it. And so the question I had was kind of a general question. It was like, what don't I like about this exchange? <laughs> what is going on that I don't like about this exchange? And I think my answer to the question is, although Fred and George are clearly on the wrong side in this situation, in my opinion, and Hermione is on the right side. And also, I like all three of these characters, <laughs> right? So much. <laughs> so much. But I think what bothers me about it is that even though... Fred and George are wrong and Hermione is right. Their thinking is flawed in the same way. Oh, right? yeah. Because Fred and George are like, they're happy. We saw they're happy. We understand what they are thinking and feeling. So they're happy, right? And Hermione is like, if they are happy, it's because they are uneducated and brainwashed. Right. And also kind of taking away their agency in that way. Right. In the same way that Fred and George are like taking away the possibility that they might not be happy, Hermione is is also taking away that possibility. Instead of all of them should be thinking about, boy, what is it like to be enslaved? And like what expressions of resistance or rejection or disappointment or rage might be possible to a person who is enslaved or a creature that is enslaved, right? And so, I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to fault Hermione too badly here because Hermione is absolutely doing the right thing. She's organizing, she's advocating. But that little line, they're uneducated and brainwashed, that's not the way I want an organizer to think about the people for whom she is advocating, right? I think what I want is a person to think more critically about power. And if, and she's 14, and I'm not faulting her in any serious or direct way. I just think the thing that bothered me about it, it seemed like 
in both cases, the house elves are being objectified and yeah. their intentions and understandings are read and interpreted by others who actually don't know what's going on for them. Instead of saying, like, it's an injustice, let's fix it. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Oh, I love that answer, Matt, that they're both wrong in the similar ways. That, right? Like, you can't always break out of the cultural constructs that you were raised in. Right. And it's really, really difficult right. to break out of those. And it's showing yeah. that even though Hermione has a sense of the injustice. And I, you know, I bet you that Fred and George do too, right? Yeah. Like, Fred and George are kind of saying, like, stipulated, it's unfair. But I'm telling you that they're right. happy, right? Exactly, right, right. And I love your answer that we fix an injustice because we fix an injustice. And part of what makes it a good strategy is being in conversation with whoever it is that we're advocating for and actually following their leadership a lot of the time. You know, also, there is something about, like, listening to the folks who are seeking justice, allowing them to be leaders and listening to what they want rather than kind of telling people what they want, right? But that's a complicated thing because we, yeah, you know, right now the only house elf that has similar ideas to Hermione that we know of in this book is Dobby, right? And so I think maybe this is the other thing that bothers me about it is just that like I, I'm uncomfortable with Hermione's phrase here. I believe what she's doing is, is the right thing here. But it also seems clear to me that house elves in general are not likely to express discontent with where they are. So I'm not sure what it looks like to take leadership from them. That's a complicated thing, right? Yeah. And so that's maybe my question and answer, right? So my yeah. question is like, so what is Hermione's right move here? And I think yeah. her right move or a right move is she shouldn't be representing the house elves. She should be representing Hogwarts. Yeah. And it's like, I don't want to go to a school where yeah. there are workers who we don't pay. And so she should be talking to McGonagall and Dumbledore and saying, we need to start at least giving the option that we pay house elves. Right. And like talking about giving them clothing items. And then they can stay if they want. Right. But we have to start doing this. We have to change our policies to be a more just place where slavery is not the only option. And then it can be this like iterative process. But. You know, I do think you have to meet people halfway and or more than halfway. And if that's not what house elves want. But yeah, I'm wondering what you think of that. If Hermione instead was like, I don't want to go to a school where we do this. Yeah. We have to change what we do. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I love the way you phrased it, which is like her job is not to represent house elves. It's to represent Hogwarts, right? The The injustice here is that Hogwarts enslaves house elves. It's right. not that they that house elves feel one way or another about their <laughs> enslavement. Right. Like that's that's redirecting the question in an unhelpful way and in favor of the institution of power keeping its power, which is what Hermione ought to be doing is encouraging the institution which has this power to give it up. Right. And then house elves can decide whatever they want to decide. Right. And we won't have to speculate about what they actually want because <laughs> right. they will be free to do what they want, right? right? I think that's absolutely right. Like we, we, it's it's right for Hermione to say we as an institution, we as wizards and witches are involved in something that we ought not to be involved in. Let's just stop that. That's yeah. something that we can just say without speculating about the opinions or the ideas of of the oppressed. Right. And it also, I think it's a it's the rejoinder to Fred and George, which is mm-hmm. like it, it matters to. To the house elves, whether they're happy or not, I imagine her saying to this right. to them, maybe it might matter to the house elves whether they're happy or not. But what matters to us is whether or not we enslave people. 
And right. that should be the thing, <laughs> right? That's right. the question. And we will try to keep the house elves as happy as we can while we become a, an organization that doesn't enslave people. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking and answering your question, Vanessa. Thank you. That was a really great conversation, Matt. I've really struggled with SPEW and the house elves for years, and I feel like this was like a leap forward in my thinking about it. So thank you. I don't feel like I've cracked it. I still want to be like, J.K. Rowling, please don't write about creatures who are happy to be enslaved. (laughs) But I do feel like this really moved me forward in my thinking about this. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's voice memo is from Courtney. Hi, everyone at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. My name's Courtney. I'm from New Jersey. And I only found your podcast about six months ago. And I love it so much. And I can't thank you enough for really being such a light in these dark times, even though you're still talking about such important topics. And I'm just so appreciative. Um, I'm up to date on the podcast, but I've been flying through my reread of the books. And so I went back to the Vanessa and Casper days. And I'm on Order of the Phoenix, and I just listened to uh, Detention with Dolores, book five, chapter 13. I just wanted to say that this book, I'm rereading it in such with such different eyes, and um, this topic of trauma that keeps coming up. My son, who's nine years old, was bullied so badly last year by kids and his teacher that we actually took him out of school 
I homeschooled him for a while until he was accepted into a different school. And he's doing much better. He's doing amazing, actually. But the trauma is still there. And what I've realized is the trauma is still there for me, too. And when things come up for him and it causes me pain, it's very, very difficult for me to not go dark in those places. Uh and blame the parents and the other grown-ups that let him down and hurt him and that are still causing him so much pain as he gets triggered. Um, so my blessing is for Harry and anyone who has experienced any sort of trauma, but also for Professor McGonagall, because it's really hard when you're a grown-up witnessing that trauma in the people that you love, and that often leads to trauma within yourself as well. I love everything about this podcast. You all are friends in my head and keep up with the good work. Thank you. Oh my gosh, Courtney. I'm just so sorry that happened. Ugh, but the other blessing I would want to add to that is a blessing for you. It's so hard to watch someone you love suffer and it creates its own suffering and I know you did, gosh, everything you could, right? Like you pulled your child from school and started homeschooling. And I would imagine that was incredibly disruptive to how you thought your year was going to go. And yet still, you know, there's this prolonged trauma that you're talking about. And it's just so painful to watch anyone you love, but especially a child, be in pain. And so I'm sorry for your son, but I'm also just sorry for you. And yeah, your son is just really lucky. Yeah, Courtney, thank you for this voice memo. Yeah, and I'm also just really grateful for the fact that your son's doing amazing now. And I'm, I'm sure that's due to the love that you have for one another and that your love and protection for him. And that's not to diminish or discount the lingering trauma, but it it's it speaks to how loving you are that he can be thriving now uh, and that you can be too. And you are friends in our head also. <laughs> and, and we don't like it when people are mean to our friends. So we're on Team Courtney and and your son's team. It's now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Maria Luisa Walter, who was 100, an artist, baker, and a great-grandmother to 45. Gustavo Dioyos, who was 78, a grandfather, golfer, professional conversationalist and a friend to all. Stan Brodsky, who was 73, a great husband, the best dad, and a good man. Stuart Paulson, 67, the man, the myth, the legend. Yvonne Young, who was 71, a mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and dear friend. And Chris Young, who was 69, a mother, grandmother, and caregiver to all. May their memory be a blessing to us all. Matt, we now offer blessings for characters. Who would you like to bless? Vanessa, this week I am blessing Neville because Neville is imperious into doing a lot of gymnastics. 
in Dark Arts by Moody this week. And yeah. I have to tell you, proper stretching is important. Speaking as an inflexible person. Yes. If someone were to imperious me and then just have me do a bunch of advanced gymnastics, <laughs> I would pull a hammy, <laughs> among other things. And I am, I am worried about Neville. I don't know. Maybe Neville's very flexible. Right. But it sounds like the Imperius curse, like he would just do it, even if he was straining a lot of muscles. This worries me. Blessings upon those who are not so flexible and also blessings upon those who believe that proper stretching is important. (laughs) Well, I would like to bless Neville as well. (gasps) The text tells us that he accidentally transplants his own ears onto a cactus. And I am worried that while on the cactus, the ears got punctured. And so my blessing for Neville is I hope that he starts wearing earrings. Because I bet you his ears got accidentally pierced on that cactus. Matt, next week we are going to be discussing book four, chapter 16, through the theme of maturity. And you are going to tell a story. Good luck. Thanks. I'll do my best to... going to have to draw from someone else's life. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> A few reminders before we give our thanks. We have our summer camp coming up now that we're in the new year and our Emily Dickinson pilgrimage and our herb and myth class is coming up soon. You can find out more by going to notsorryworks.com. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas and our music is by the brilliant Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Courtney for their voicemail and to Courtney's son, to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Chikail, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and everyone who sent in the names of those they've loved and lost this week. Do hedgehogs have souls? This, this is what I want to know. Yeah, I say yes, but I but do we'll too, for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay.